Hi, everyone. It's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Brandy Hayes Morrison. Brandy is the Vice President of Strategic Growth for Pluribus Digital, a technology firm based in the Washington, D.C. area. She leads business development efforts in the federal government contracting space. Her professional background includes engineering and management consulting positions at some places you've probably heard of, HP, IBM, and Accenture, before transitioning to the world of small business. Her clients have spanned multiple countries, and you'll hear all about that in today's episode. So in episode 49, Brandy and I discuss her exposure to computers at an early age, how building relationships can change your life, and why she recommends that everyone does a stint in consulting. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, make sure to give a five-star rating and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. Now let's get it. Hi, everyone. I'm back for a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, and today I'm joined by Brandy Morrison. Hi, Brandy. Hi, Dina. So for my listeners who are not familiar with you, want to give a brief introduction of who you are and the current role that you hold? Sure. So Brandy Hayes Morrison, I am the Vice President of Strategic Growth for a digital services firm called Pluribus Digital. Um, And we're in the government contracting space. So I lead our business development efforts. Actually, I was going to ask for you to go into a little bit more detail and what it means to be the VP of Strategic Growth. So um, long story short, I helped the company win new contracts. We work in the federal government space, the U.S. federal government. And so we focus on what we call civilian agencies, meaning they're not Department of Defense. They're not the intelligence agencies, but more like GSA, Department of Labor, FDIC, those sorts of agencies. And we help them with their digital transformations. We've helped a few agencies begin to pick up iterative development or approaches to Agile or even their approaches to to DevOps. Great. And you know what? I want to hear more about how you got to become the VP of Strategic Growth. So let's start with how did you even get into tech? Did you know that you were always going to work in the IT field or was it something that came later in life? I think I've always known that I was going to have some relationship to tech. I think my story starts a, a long time ago. So I was uh, so born in D.C. Both of my parents were federal government employees. My dad was an FBI agent. So the FBI moved us from D.C. to New York City. So I grew up in New York City. So this would have been so-called late 70s, early 80s. And so when you think of like video games, so Atari was out at that time. And so my mom did not want my brother and I to get an Atari. I distinctly remember that. But she said, um, oh, there's these new things that IBM has. She was obsessed with IBM. So their headquarters is in Armonk, New York. And she said, I'm going to get you a PC. So she got my brother and I an IBM PC. Even before that, there was um, a VIC-20 a computer called a Commodore 64. And so we had all these computers at a very young age. And my brother started programming. So he would have been like, call it sixth, seventh grade. I was in kindergarten at the time. And so I'm witnessing this. I'm seeing these computers having very hands-on relationships with computers Mm -hmm. at a very early age. But I was very much into biology and chemistry 
And so I thought I was going to be a biochemist, but I felt like there was always this pull toward IT and computers. And so I think I always knew that I would be in the realm. I would say fast forward to my senior year of high school, I ended up getting a full engineering scholarship to Rice University in Houston, Texas. So I had never heard of Rice. I had only ever been to Houston, Texas once. And so I went sight unseen to this university and they asked, what do you want your discipline to be out of all the engineering disciplines? And the only thing I could think of was computer engineering because I was so familiar with computers. So that's really how it started not even knowing what an engineer was, not having heard of this school. And so it was a little bit of a, a gamble, but um, but that was the start. So when you got to Rice, not knowing what to expect, what were some of the lessons learned? Oh, yes. Yeah. So there were lots of leaps of faith. So even geographically, you know, growing up in Manhattan and going to Houston, mm. Texas in the 90s. Um, so there was a, a cultural shift, um, not having heard of this university. I mean, now I know it's a, you know, it's a pretty prestigious institution, but back then it didn't have the same level of national recognition or even international recognition that it does now. So, um, so the leap of faith was geographical. It was going to a university kind of sight unseen, had never been to the campus before. I think one of my lessons learned was how academically aggressive universities could be compared to my experience in a New York City public school. Mm. And so, I mean, I had made straight A's from pre-K through 12th grade. And so I was not used to anything else. And that very first semester was a wake-up call for me. (laughs) So, um, Because you're taking, at the time, the big three. So everyone takes um, calculus, chemistry, and physics as kind of like a base. And so it kicked my butt, for lack of a better phrase. And so I had to just learn how to study differently, learn how to adapt, learn how to study in teams. That was like a big deal. And Mm -hmm. so when you have um, classmates that may not look like you, so, you know, very white male oriented, you don't always feel comfortable studying with them. And it's not because they excluded me. There was no active exclusion. I can't say that. I think everyone's very nice, very friendly, Mm -hmm. but it was just, you know, at that point in college, I was very drawn to the other black students. And so I felt like I was kind of living in two different worlds and still trying to study on my own because that had been successful for me up until that point. But in engineering, it just changed the game. So a student who's looking to go into college, maybe study engineering, they have a similar path to you. Do you have any tips or advice for them for how to become successful? Yeah, I would say do a lot of research on the school that you're going to or the schools that you get accepted into, I guess is a better way to say that for sure. Um, Think about the culture of the university. Um, If you get a chance, visit for sure. I think for me, because it was a scholarship, I just figured I would take the chance. But I know a lot of students these days, they get scholarships to more than one school, they get accepted into more than one school. And so if you have the means, definitely try to visit for sure and see what aligns to your personality is, you know, the other piece of that. I think in terms of studying differently, I think in engineering, really any STEM field, you have to learn how to study in teams. I think it's the first, it was my first lesson in collaboration because I may get a part of this very hard or difficult concept. Someone else gets yet a different part and we're sharing and we're collaborating. And then professors have office hours. So I would tell any student, if you're not used to that concept of visiting with the professors, I think for me, 
it was a little intimidating to go sit with the professor and ask him questions. Like that just wasn't something I was used to. Right. So definitely take advantage of any professor office hours would, would have been my two biggest key takeaways. Yes. I remember office hours. I was very similar to you where I was like, why do we need to go to office hours? Like, what is this about? But now that I'm out of college, I see the benefit of building the relationship with the professor. And then if you do not know something, obviously they are your best resource. If they're giving hours for you to come and have a discussion with them, definitely take them up on it. For sure. Yeah. And you mentioned the word relationships, which I think is one of my biggest life lessons. So yeah, have the office hours with the professor, but either even other than that, make sure you're building relationships with your friends, with your peers on campus, both inside of engineering and outside, because you just never know how, how life can come full circle. And I say that because for me, it came to a head when I was about to graduate. <clears throat> so I was not any sort of cum laude, I'll just say that. And so looking for a job. And so it can be difficult from a GPA standpoint, but because I had networked so much, I was able to network my way into my first position at what was then Compact Computers, eventually being absorbed into Hewlett Packard. Um, but that's how I got my first software engineering job was really through networking and people who knew of me. And so I think relationships has, has been a big thing in my life, in my career. So let's just say it's your first day at Hewlett Packard. This is your first corporate job. And you're walking in as a Black woman who is a developer. What were your first thoughts entering it? So I can say it was, um, it was a little buffered because my supervisor was uh, a Black male. And so, yeah, so that, that was very helpful. He went to uh, Southern University in Louisiana, and he very much was, um, I would say, in tune with the fact that he was hiring a young Black female. And okay. so he... Um, guided me through the process, was very much my mentor for the time that I was there. I will say that when Compact got merged into HP, um, he was on the list to be laid off. Okay. And so I saw him kind of packing up his office after 20 some odd years of giving his life to this company. And so I see this, I make a mental note and I'm feeling sad for him because I know he's married with two children. And I go to meet kind of, I think it was like the division director. So they told me what group I was going to be reassigned to. Mm -hmm. And while I'm meeting with this division director, and it's like a meet and greet. And at the end, I say, um, well, do you need any more people? Because I really think you should hire my manager, my supervisor. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, who's that? And so I basically pitch my manager on the spot to this division director, and he ends up hiring him. And so he did not end up getting laid off. But that was yet another lesson in relationships for me, because I felt like he took a chance on me coming out of Rice with mm -hmm. a not so great GPA. So if I could ever return the favor, then I would. That's a wonderful story. There's that quote of making sure that your name's being spoken in rooms that you're not in. And that is like the perfect example of doing that. And oh, I just love that story. Well, I always feel like when someone does something considerate for mm -hmm. you, that you should look to return the favor. And so for me, it was, I was more than happy to help him in any way that I could. That's excellent. And actually, let's talk about your experience at Hewitt Packard, because that's a bigger company. And like you mentioned, like coming straight out of college, that's a great opportunity to have. So you networked your way into that particular role. What was your experience? It was a great experience. I should say that my summer before I graduated, I interned at Compact. 
Um, and so that was my first foray into like large corporate. And mm -hmm. so recognizing just the sheer number of people, um, just the, in a lot of the background politics and making sure that you're visible and that you advocate for yourself. Because I think a lot of times culturally, we're taught to kind of be heads down and do your job and do your job well, but that's really only part of it. Um, you just need to make sure that people know what you're doing. Um, I think a lot of times we assume that our work speaks for itself, but you really need to make sure that you're visible and that other people that are outside of your kind of small group, if you will, know who you are and know what you're doing. So I would say that that was a big lesson from large corporate. Um, I was a uh, web developer at the time working mm -hmm. on, ironically, the public sector website for Compaq and HP, not knowing what the future held for me in terms of a career in public sector. But for me, it was a full circle moment given given that my parents were both federal employees, but I enjoyed the experience for sure. But that was my first career before I went to business school. I wanted to touch on being visible and advocating for yourself. What are some tips or advice that you have for people who are looking to be more visible? Normally you would have a direct manager or a supervisor. I would say definitely make time to have one-on-one -on -one interactions with that person. And so even if it's 30 minutes a week, if that person stays there too busy, 30 minutes every two weeks, but you really want to make sure you understand what the direct expectations are of you, of that person. Give them a status, even if they don't ask for a status. And it doesn't even have to be an in-person verbal status. It could be via email, um, even if they don't ask for it. And there may be things behind the scenes that they don't even know that you are working on or dealing with. And you want to make sure to spell that out too. Generally, there are other groups, other teams that are tangential to yours. I would say reach out of your comfort zone, out of your small group, and see what the other people are working on. So if you're a developer, there's usually now a DevOps team, an operations team, a testing team, um, or even the business analysis team. I would say reach out to those folks and see what, you know, kind of, you know, what are you guys doing over there and try to figure out how it relates to what you're doing in your everyday work. And so I've noticed the more that you kind of reach out of your own little world, really, then people get to know who you are. Yes, that is excellent advice. And then let's take it further with advocating for yourself, because as we both know, if you don't advocate for yourself, who's really going to advocate for you? So what advice do you have for people who need to increase their voice in the workplace and advocate for themselves? Yeah, this is where it becomes very helpful for you to um, proactively give your manager or whoever you report to your chain, um, a status of what you're working on. And I would say always be ready. What, what is it? Uh, stay ready so you don't have to get ready type things. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you're in the room with your boss's boss, your boss's boss's boss, have a quick spiel. Don't be long-winded. Have a sound bite, you know, make it 30, 45 seconds or less. Or, you know, hey, you know, my name is Brandy Morrison. I'm working on these features for this particular sprint. And I think it's awesome because X, Y, and Z, you mm -hmm. know, something really quick so that they're like, okay, so I remember, you know, Brandy, our new engineer, our new developer. And she was, you know, it, it might have been 30 seconds, but you don't know what resonates with whom. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times we assume that people know what we're working on, but they're so busy in their own little worlds that they don't. One thing that I did at IBM, and this is, a, I was an intern, a summer intern when I was a full-time MBA student. I made a list of all of the executives that I wanted to meet 
And this was an Excel spreadsheet and I kind of listed out the division and what they did and that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And I sent them all an email about a quick 30 minute meeting just to introduce myself and explore their backgrounds. And it ended up being um, an Excel sheet of 60 executives. And that actually is what landed me to get my full-time employment at IBM later on. And I'm so nosy. I'm just like, you know, well, where are you from? And how did you get to where you are? And where did you go to college? How many siblings do you have? And those are the sorts of questions I'm asking just because I like people's life stories. But mm-hmm. it ended up resulting in a full-time role. So you just never know who you're going to meet or how things are going to play out. Yes. And Brandy, you mentioned how you could have what we call an elevator pitch. You're like 30 to 40 seconds spiel about what you're working on. But what if you're on the functional side? Like what if you're a project manager or a scrum master or um, a product consultant? What are some ways that you could also have that 30 second elevator pitch, but from a different perspective? Yeah. So talking in terms of being a developer or a scrum master, you know that you have this sprint. You know you're working on a set of features. That feature lends itself to a product. That product is in support of this business function. Like you need to understand what you're doing and how that supports the bigger picture and be able to go through that whole dependency in 30 or 45 seconds. I'm working on this feature in support of this sprint and support of this product, which supports this business function. And you have to give your feelings around it. And I'm excited to be here. Because I've been in a lot of rooms where we were talking about performance evaluations or hiring someone. And from a cultural aspect, I hear a lot of um, non-Black people say, well, Brandy or Dina, they didn't seem excited about the role. I don't know Mm -hmm. if they're happy with what they're doing. And, you know, culturally, I think we're so busy trying to do the work. We're not thinking about how we feel about the work. We don't always smile about it. So I think that it's it's important for you to say things like, I'm excited about the work that I'm doing, or I look forward to working on the next sprint. I look forward to learning more. And so, you know, give a little bit of commentary about how you feel about what you're doing. And I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about things, we talk about them from that limited view or scope, right? So we're like, well, we hit these deadlines. But we need to start saying, I'm excited for this, or I enjoy my role, or I look forward to seeing this project succeed, like you said, just to show the excitement that you have for the work that you're actually doing. Absolutely. I think it's it's very important because the last thing you want to do is have someone assume that mm. you are excited or that they assume anything. So I think you need to be very um, explicit about how you feel about the work. And even if you're not so excited, you probably should um, behave in an excited manner (laughs) 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 or eager manner, just, you know, something where you're, you appear happy to be there. Yes, yes, exactly. Sometimes you have to fake it till you make it, right? There you go. (laughs) And Brandy, so you mentioned that you started off as a developer, but you ended up taking this whole shift and you went back to school for your MBA and you went for marketing consulting and IT. What made you switch your focus? I knew very early on, like in high school. um, So I played basketball my whole career, like through high school. And so one of the coaches said, oh, what are you going to do? And I told him then, because this is when I knew I was going to get the scholarship. I said, well, I'm going to be an engineer, but then I'm going to get my MBA. I don't know where that came from exactly. (laughs) Probably my mother was always like, get a degree in business and work for IBM. Like that was her pinnacle. Like if her children worked for IBM, then she succeeded as a parent. (laughs) So so I knew that at some point after being an engineer that I was going to get my MBA. 
And so after three years of doing hands-on tech work, I um, went to take a GMAT course because I felt like I was going to slow roll. I said, most people go to business school five years after they graduate from undergrad, they work for five years and then they go to business school. So that was my plan. And so I took a, a GMAT course that was on the HP campus. And so the gentleman who was the GMAT instructor, he was also a Rice alum. And he had ties into the Rice Business School with the dean of the business school at that time. And so what I didn't know was that he was telling the dean of the business school about me. And so the two of them began to become in cahoots, if you will, about how to get me into the business school. And so I was like, no, no, you know, like I'm going to apply to Stanford or or Columbia or Wharton or something. And so uh, long story short, their plan worked and I ended (laughs) up back at Rice. So I did Rice twice. And um, it was a good pivot because a lot of people go to business school to reinvent themselves. And so I was able to steer my career in a totally different direction, still Mm -hmm. in IT. I just wasn't hands-on anymore. I um, went into consulting. And so the year between my first and second year of business school was when I interned at IBM in New York at their headquarters in Armok. And then when I graduated, IBM had made me an offer to do consulting in the public sector space based out of Washington, D.C. So that's how I got to D.C. That's how I turned into a management consultant. So your mother got her wish and you did eventually get to IBM as well as following your parents' footsteps in a roundabout sort of way. Talk about your experience at IBM. How was it for you? So I worked at IBM for almost five years. So this would have been from 2005 to 2010. And so, and this is what started my world tour in Europe. So I will caveat that by saying some of my experience was international in nature. Mm -hmm. So two very different aspects of, you know, someone who's based locally in the United States versus someone who's traveling abroad. So a lot of times I was definitely the only one in the room. So whether it was the only Black person, the only female, the only American in the room, I was definitely the only one. What I can say is that I got comfortable being the only one. And so I think a lot of times you have to get over uh, yourself and the voices in your head telling you that maybe you are not enough or maybe um, keeping you from speaking up. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think that we all have to kind of deal with our internal selves and be confident enough to say, there's a reason why I'm at this table. And even to take it a step further, really do things to try to ensure that you don't become the only one at the table going forward. How do you bring other people to the table? But I would say for me in the beginning, it did take a lot of effort to understand that I was there for a reason and that my voice and my perspective was valuable and that I needed to speak up and that I needed to be heard. Yes. And we've had similar paths, even down all the way down to basketball, but also in consulting. And I think you're one of the first people I've had on that has a consulting background. And so I want to dig into that a little bit for you. How was consulting? Yeah, I think, you know, I talked about kind of, um, advocating for yourself in the politics of um, just general corporate America, I think in consulting, that is like times 10. Mm -hmm. Like it is a survival mechanism within consulting. So Mm -hmm. you have like your own um, organizational group, like you report to this person, but then you will be put on a contract or a project. So now you have your contract team. Um, Mm -hmm. And then usually you're in a division or practice, and that's another set of leadership. And so you have all of these pockets of people 
that you are somehow integrated with and related to, and you really need to be, be able to navigate or circumvent all of those spaces in parallel. And sometimes it's not enough that you work on your contract for 40 or 50 hours a week. They're like, well, Brandy, what did you do to give back to this practice or to give back to this division? And we want you to do some volunteer work and, you know, go talk to this chapter of the National Society of Black Engineers um, and go to this happy hour. Because if you want to get promoted, you need to make sure that you're networking with the right people. And so, you know, it's just a lot of different levers to pull. And I think that consulting is a test of your emotional intelligence. I think if you come in with low EQ, by the time you leave, it's going to be pretty high. (laughs) So, um, And then a lot of it is people interaction. I think in consulting, yes, you can do your job and learn how to do it well, because sometimes we don't even have the basic skills to do what they're telling us to do. Right. Um, Being able to speak up, to say what you need help. But aside from doing your job, the networking is huge and it's critical. And being able to navigate different personalities is a big deal in consulting, way more than any any other career that I've had. Do you have a lesson that you've learned with navigating different personalities that you could share? Oh, my goodness. I'm laughing because my very first team, I would say, was a challenge. And without going into detail, I would say that it was probably a double or triple challenge um, being young, being black, being female, the dynamics of my team. It just made it very difficult for me to stand out in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was um, a lesson for me, not just in how to navigate, but to recognize that there are some people that you will never you will never please no matter Mm -hmm. what you do. And so at some point you need to understand where your mental health may be taking a toll and you need to pivot in another direction. That is such a good point because like you mentioned, there's just so many different personalities you can interact with and you want to make everyone feel welcome. You want to make sure that everyone is okay, but sometimes personalities just don't mesh. So you definitely have to have that emotional IQ to know how to, when to push and when to pull and when to, what battles to actually fight. And that is part of the complexity of consulting. So as you can tell from the comments that we've made, consulting is not for the weak. So you have to already do what I call the 40 plus four. You have your 40 hours for your project plus the four for internal projects You have to deal with making sure that you're aligned from a management perspective. There's just a lot of pieces and not everyone is cut out for consulting. So I want to pose the question to you. What types of people would you recommend investigate looking into consulting as a career? What type of personalities? Well, it's hard for me to say that because what I have in my mind, I was not that person going Mm. into consulting. (laughs) I wouldn't, (laughs) even though I, I had learned the relationship lesson and how to network, I, mm-hmm. I struggled with um, advocating for myself. I struggled with even things like public speaking. Mm-hmm. I struggled with being proactive, like making sure my manager knew what I was working on. I was not that person. I was never like salesy, glitzy person. Hey, look at me, look at me. Yeah. Um, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm like, a, I was an extreme introvert. So I wasn't even that person. I think I was um, crafted into a more extroverted, a more proactive person by trial and error. So I say all that to say that anyone can go into consulting, but some people will thrive more than others. 
Some people will come in and be miserable. Some people will come in and love it. I do recommend consulting for at least a couple of years for anyone that is open to doing it because you will learn a lot of tough lessons about other people and about yourself. And I do think that consulting as a career is definitely not for everyone, but consulting as a short-term stint, as a means to an end, is a growth opportunity for everyone. Excellent. Yes, I agree with your same sentiments, Brandy. So I do highly recommend people look into it as a career, but just know that it's not going to be easy. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's, it's not easy. Um, and even for folks, and what I'm talking about, remember, I wasn't even like getting on a plane twice mm-hmm. a week. And so for folks that do the Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday consulting, just throw in the logistics of traveling every mm-hmm. week and just kind of how that can take a toll as well. And you went from consulting and eventually you end up as a VP of strategic growth. So do you want to briefly explain your career journey from doing management consulting to becoming a VP? I became a global customs subject matter expert. So like import export things, mostly on the cargo side. And so then Accenture hired me away from IBM. So more management consulting. And I worked at at Accenture for two years. But at that point in my personal life, I'm like, okay, well, I do eventually want to settle down and have kids and that whole thing. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to meet my husband on the plane to Bulgaria. So I'm just going to kind of slow it down. So I purposely um, left the international scene, which was also my departure from large corporate. And so I ended up getting a position supporting the FDIC. And that was one of the best jobs that I ever had. Um, So it was local. I drove drove to and from work every day. I supported the CIO office with an FDIC. And the reason why I loved it is because I was one of the liaisons between the technical teams and the non-technical people. And so I realized that that is my sweet spot. So I can go meet with the developers and then kind of rehash, reframe what they said to be able to speak to management executives who might be writing the check for this business case. So it's like, you know, why do we need $5 million, $10 million, sometimes $100 million to transform this application or to modernize this application? And so being that liaison was the perfect role for me. Um, So that was five years at at, uh, FDIC. Then one of my friends that I had met at IBM, he and I had started the same day, like years ago. Mm-hmm. He said, um, well, I'm working for this company here and I become a partner. So he was part owner. And he's like, why don't you come over and do business development with us? And I'm like, uh, I've never done business development before. And he was like, no, yeah, like, I think you'd be great. You like networking and relationships and people and you have a tech background. And so in his mind, he's like putting together all the pieces of my career. Mm -hmm. And at some point I was like, cool, let's do it. So we kind of both jumped off the cliff together. He brought me in to help them win um, their very first DHS contract, Department of Homeland Security. And um, after a few years, we won a $98 million contract at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So uh, we've, we've won a a lot of good things. That was probably the biggest one so far. I think there'll be another few on the horizon. So excited about that. And I just go into a little bit more depth about your VP role. From your experience and your career journey, for people who want to get to that level, what Mm -hmm. advice do you have for them? 
I think that you should be very aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I would say that that is not always easy. I think if you talk to any of my colleagues, they will say that Brandy is very upfront about what she knows, but more importantly, she's upfront about what she doesn't know. (laughs) So I think that it is um, sometimes out of our comfort zone to say, you know what, I I don't know. You know, I'll Mm -hmm. tell my boss, hey, I don't I don't know pricing. I don't know the pricing strategy. And so he will give me an opportunity to learn how to do pricing. Or I will say, you know, I don't understand contracts. And in my mind, I'm like, I didn't go to law school. I never took a contracts class. And so, you know, again, an opportunity to learn about something that I don't have a background in is the biggest thing um, or another thing. So other than being honest about your strengths and weaknesses, just the ability to learn new things, to be comfortable outside of your comfort zone, because I think that's the only way that you grow is by taking on something that you've never done before, which I think I started to learn in consulting. But I think that that helps in any executive role as well, because I guarantee you are going to face something that you've never faced before. And you need to know how to learn it, do it, and eventually do it well. And from your perspective of being in an executive seat now, how is the view different than when you began as a developer? Oh, communication, for Mm. sure. I mean, when I was a developer, I could just do my code. I didn't have to talk to it. I didn't have to tell anybody about it. The code would speak for itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I would say as I've gone through the trajectory of my career from a developer to a management consultant to now an executive, um, communicating what you're doing. So you you communicate, hey, I'm about to do the thing. Then you Mm -hmm. do the thing. Hey, everyone, I did the thing. And I think it went well. And these are some metrics to say this is how it went well. You know, so it's a lot of communication, I think, is the the key to growing in your career to be able to communicate effectively um, and not to drone on. Like these days, it's almost like you have 30 to 60 seconds to get your point across. So communicate it, communicate it quick and hit the key points and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, being concise is definitely a skill set that has to be learned early on. For sure. Yes, I agree. (laughs) And Brandy, one more question about being in an executive seat. For people that look like us, we don't really have a lot of role models. Who were some of your role models? Sure. Um, And I can't say it was like an executive per se, but I would say it would be my mom and her sister's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my mom was a 35 year um, federal employee mm-hmm. and she very much advocated for herself. <laughs> and so, um, you know, being a, a, a black woman in the federal government in the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s, um, she probably was definitely uh, one of the only ones at the table. But she never, at least that I saw, struggled with her self-esteem around being the only one in the room. I think she felt like because she was Black and female, she needed to stand out even more. And all of her sisters at one point in time worked for the federal government as well. I would say three out of the four sisters all retired from the federal government. And so I can't say that they had an issue with self-esteem in terms of being a Black woman and navigating in their careers. And so seeing how they didn't let them let that hold them back or bother them. That helped me to be able to be the only one at the table and still be comfortable in my own skin. 
I love that. I feel like, especially as a black woman, the first place you look is to your mother or your aunts when it comes to inspiration, because that's what we saw at home. Yeah. And it, you know, it wasn't without any sort of trial or error or challenges. They definitely had those, but Mm -hmm. I saw them kind of get up and dust themselves off and go on to the next thing. And that's how they navigated their careers. So I think that that stayed with me that I never once heard them say that they couldn't or shouldn't do something because they were black or a woman and and they navigated one un in particular navigates relationships very well. And so I think I saw that work for her. Yes. It's the resilience of it all, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say if I would write a book about my life and my family, it would be called resilience. Yes. Yes. And I can relate to that because I tell my mom and my aunt and my grandma all the time that you all made it look so easy going to work and coming yeah. home. And then like you get out in the real world and you're like, this is what you're doing with this whole time. Exactly. Is that, that's what you were dealing with? Like, oh, you're like, and you're not tired. Like, but then Absolutely. you look back at your family and you're like, okay, if they can do it, I can do it too. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it becomes ingrained in you as a child, mm-hmm. right? You're like seeing yeah. them to your point, make it look easy. And so I think at a certain point you start to feel invincible as mm-hmm. well. Yes. Yes. That is exactly the way to put it. You feel invincible as well. Yes. Yes. I, I sure did at some time. So. <laughs> <laughs> so a few more questions, Brandy, so we can wrap up our conversation today. One thing that you have mentioned throughout our conversation is community. And don't think that I forgot about the community that you started in D.C. So I want you to tell my listeners a little bit about that. Okay. Um, During my time at IBM, I realized that I was on a particular contract and I might have been the only person of color or black consultant on this contract. But then I started to hear that there were other black consultants on other contracts. And so I... um, had a happy hour one day to get a lot of us together. And I would say maybe 12 to 15 people showed up Mm -hmm. uh, to the first one, but then word got around and then it was 40 people and then it was 200 people. And then the last one I had before I settled down in my personal life was probably 750 people. So it it really grew. And somewhere in the middle, one of the um, Black executives at IBM heard about these big gatherings in DC and he was like, what is going on in DC? And so he flew down to start networking. And so he was really impressed by the community. But I would say for me, my passion is connecting people. Um, When I was in grad school, connecting all of the other Black graduate students that were um, getting their MBAs, connecting us, connecting the consultants at IBM. Now in more of a tech fashion, being one of the people to stand up the Digital Services Coalition. So we are a cohort or group of now 28 firms that are in alignment with the U.S. Digital Service and really Mm -hmm. trying to provide the residents of this country with strong digital services coming from the federal government and now even the state and local governments as well. So I always like to kind of be at the hub of different things and bringing people together for a collective purpose. That's awesome, Brandy. And I highly commend you on bringing those networking together because a lot of times people have different silos, but never come together. Exactly. And we need to come together. That's what makes real change happen. Yeah, there's value in that for sure. I think that's been one of my life lessons to your point that there's value in bringing these different silos together. Absolutely. And also, I want to go back and touch on your role currently. So obviously, it's less technical than when you were a developer. 
But I feel like sometimes people think of like when your role in strategic growth and business development, that because you're not doing something technical, that you're not technically in the tech industry. And I wanted to get your thoughts around that. And if you felt that was true as well. Uh, No, that is not true at all. You can still be non-technical and be in the tech industry. I think that um, what non-technical people bring to the table is a great compliment to the more technical folks. So the communication skills. So, you know, a lot of developers are much more introverted in their personalities and communication may not be their best skill set, but you might be the voice to what they're developing. There's a new-ish concept in application development called human-centered design, Mm -hmm. where you are interviewing stakeholders and you are researching what their needs are. You're even able to read between the lines and and basically map out what should a veteran's interaction be with the va.gov website, for example. Um, What should your grandmother's experience be trying to get, um, I forget if it's Medicaid or Medicare, benefits. And so, you know, there are just real life examples where someone who's not technical can be able to have those conversations with the stakeholders so that you can have someone develop a product that resonates with people in general. And then at the end of the day, you have to have someone to manage this whole process. So, you know, your project managers need to be able to manage the more technical people. So there's a lot of room for people that are not hands-on technical. So the reason that I asked the question is we need to make sure that people understand that there is a career outside of being a developer within tech. You don't have to be extremely technical. There's non-technical roles such as scrum masters, project managers, product consultants. And like you mentioned, or UX designers from a human-centered design approach, there are many roles within tech and they don't all have to be extremely technical skilled roles. So I just wanted to make sure that that was called out and that people understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. And you're going to learn a lot. I think if you're not technical and you want to get into tech, you, you know, you get in there, but also recognizing that you may have to learn a lot of the, the tech stacks, the Angular React node when you hear these things. But I think it's all a situation of whether or not you are open to learning new things. Yes, yes, exactly. And Brandy, we've talked through a lot today from your executive role to you building community and so much more. And I open the floor to you. Is there any advice, motivation, inspiration that you want to share with my listeners before we sign off today? Yeah, one thing that I learned from my mentor, she's the CEO of a government contracting firm. And I was asking her about work-life balance because I'm married and I have three sons that are all under nine. So very busy household. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, it's not so much work-life balance, it's work-life integration. And so when she first said it, I just kind of had to think on it. But now that COVID is here and these kids are home all day, every day, I completely get what she means. And so, you know, whether, whether or not you, you know, have a family that you're responsible for on a day-to-day basis, um, just thinking about um, taking time for your mental health, for your physical health, um, just other aspects of your life. I would just say, make sure that you are doing what's best for yourself from uh, uh, being well-rounded. We definitely need to take time for our mental health. With COVID being here, it's a little bit different now because when you're working from home, it feels like you can do all this extra stuff because you don't have that commute. Take time for yourself. For sure. Yes. Take time for the exercise. Uh, Try to eat healthy, although I struggle with that myself. But but yes, definitely take time for yourself. 
Well, what a wonderful note to end on, Brandy. Thank you, Dina, for the invite. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the podcast on all social media platforms at Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode, and also leave a five-star review. If you have a few extra minutes, please leave a written review of how much you like the podcast and the information that you're learning. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.